Hello and welcome to the Overly Animated Podcast, where we take animation seriously. We talk everything animation here, including The Prince of Egypt, which we'll be getting into right now because it is the 20th anniversary of the release of said film. I am Mel Moyer, and today I am joined by Beatrice Murad. Hello! And Justin Cummings. Hello! Yay! Um, so, like I said, we'll be discussing The Prince of Egypt today. Uh, in honor of its uh, big anniversary year. You can find out more about this podcast at OverlyAnimated.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes at OverlyAnimated.com slash iTunes, uh, where we appreciate your star ratings, um, or search Overly Animated on your favorite podcatcher. So, Prince of Egypt. Um, it's interesting because this isn't one we've discussed before, obviously, um, but... Um, I feel like it's, like, since the advent of sort of microbrogging and that sort of thing, like, it's kind of gotten, like, a cult following a bit. Um, there's a lot of, like, there's, like, there's, like, a Prince of Egypt fandom. I think it's just a general, like, DreamWorks fandom, I suppose. Um, like, on Tumblr and that sort of thing. But essentially, um, it is the animated rendering of the story of Exodus, um, which is interesting. Um but if you guys just want to go around the horn real quick with your sort of introduction, I guess, to the movie, first time you saw it, you if you have any special relationship with it, um, and that sort of thing. So we'll start with Beatrice. So I thought the movie I was getting was Sinbad. So I... Because the the animation style is a little similar in terms of, like, I don't know. I just thought they were similar. And I saw GIFs of Simbad's villain or, like, the, the goddess of chaos on Tumblr. And I was like, sign me up. So um, I hadn't seen, obviously, I hadn't seen uh, Prince of Egypt. So when uh, the opportunity to be on the podcast came up, I thought, this is a great opportunity to see it. Why not? So I was ready for my giant lady with amazing hair and... I got the story of Exodus instead, and it was fine. It was great. But just to give you an idea of like the mindset of like I had a brief moment of brief moment of just jarring confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but beside that, uh, again, I just recently saw the film and I I enjoyed it. I I have thoughts on it that we're probably gonna get into later. But, um, but yeah, so I'm kind of a newbie in this, in like, in terms of fandom. I honestly, I think the one actual accurate thing I knew about the film was that meme of, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that meme of like the hug, but yeah. like going backwards, you know, the, the betrayal, I guess. Or the reverse scene. version of it sometimes. They yeah. do the reverse. Yeah, so I guess that's the one bad thing about meme culture. That was supposed to be like a very like big moment, and then I was just like, "Oh, that's a meme." Yeah, <laughs> but but that's just the time we're living in, I guess. So I'm here just to kind of kind of provide the newcomer perspective yeah. without having been influenced by the 20 years since it's been released. Nice, uh, just. I I love the classic five 2D DreamWorks films that were made, and I think of those. This is probably the best. Uh, they're all good, but I think this one stands as the, the the best one that they made. And we'll get into why later. But I saw this when I was younger. But, of course, back then I was like, oh, this is the boring one compared to the movies of all, you know, the talking animals and the <laughs> cool, fun sidekicks and the big monsters. And then I just rewatched it this week and I was like, holy crap, this movie's amazing. Like, compared to, like, 
the others of that time period. I'm like, I saw this when I was, you know, seven. I, I maybe shouldn't have seen this at seven. Yeah. That is something we are going to get into, too, is, you know, why are, why are kids of a certain age watching this movie? Um, but, yeah, so my um, own personal sort of thing with it is, like, I don't recall the first time I watched it. I just remember, like, I had it on VHS, if, you know, if we want to date myself that way. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it was just, like, a thing that I used to watch. I used to think it was pretty scary. I remember seeing it in theaters, because I specifically remember seeing the Burning Bush scene in theaters. So I saw it in theaters at some point, unless it's, like, a fake memory. Who knows? Um, but I really enjoyed it. I didn't, like, you know, have come to have an appreciation for it or anything like that until I was, like, way older, like, in college. And it was on Netflix. And we were like, oh, let's watch the prince of egypt and then you watch it and you're like oh wow this is like intense and just a very good film um but yeah i mean it, it, it's stuck around kind of in the consciousness for 20 years now and we'll get into the end like kind of things that are still going on with it now obviously it's become a meme thing on top <laughs> with certain scenes getting gift pretty well um and people like use it a lot in they use the music a lot in like fandom stuff they'll make dramatic gift sets with song lyrics from the movie and that sort of thing so it's it's pretty it's still culturally relevant even outside of its um subject matter but basically the crash course on the history of this film was that jeffrey kratzenberg um had always had this idea to create a animated version of the Ten Commandments. Disney said no, and he kind of shelved it until the creation of DreamWorks in the 90s, um, when basically Steven Spielberg, who was involved at that time, said, "Oh, you should do you should do that movie." Um, so they went in to do it. Um, not shocking that Disney said no to this, um, but it was also at a time when Disney's animation department wasn't super. Uh, it's super as robust as we know it as today. Um, but yeah, I think Justin, you mentioned um, when we were talking about this is that basically this was one of the catalysts for the creation of DreamWorks. Right. There was one of not not the main DreamWorks as a whole, but like the animation division of DreamWorks. There was one movie before this, and that was Ants, which we kind of all push off to the side a bit but this was you know this was why jeffrey katzenberg left disney was to make this he was a co-founder and the ceo of dreamworks animation like this was his passion project so this it, it explains why this movie was the way it was and why early dreamworks was the way it was is it was created for a reason not just to cash in not just to be another animated studio but specifically to make the movies disney wouldn't make like shrek no <laughs> Eventually, yes um yeah and i mean like once they got into it like they very much did get into it i mean they brought in um theological scholars from various um religions um they brought in historians to make it as you know accurate to to the time period and accurate to the story as they could like you know it is like you said it was a total just threw everything in their passion project um and it's interesting because it is one of the so around the time of um the early 90s this one came out way later it came out in 1998 but in 1992 or i guess it was 1991 technically 
uh, when Beauty and the Beast came out, it became technically the first Disney Pixar um, collaboration because they utilized Pixar's cap system to render the ballroom scene in three dimensions, and it kind of became the first like big hybrid film like that. This, however, in 1998, or not however, but 1998 rolls around. This is another version of that, but it uses, you know, it's obviously not Disney, it's not Pixar, it's Toon Boom Animation and Silicon Graphics, um, which I don't really know what, I don't think they've done much since then. Toon Boom is up in Canada. Um, I'm not sure where Silicon Graphics is, but, you know, it's these two smaller uh, animation companies putting together this gorgeous film um but yeah i don't know if anyone has anything to sort of speak to the animation there because i think that's one of the it's dreamworks had such a um dreamworks did sinbad correct i think they did do sinbad yes so that's probably why you thought you were getting sinbad because they had similar animation styles between them um but yeah if anyone has any particular thoughts or emotions towards the animation I mean, it's gorgeous. So, it, oh, sorry. Continue, Justin. Uh, no, uh, Toon Boom is not. It's not actually an animation company. It's a uh, software hmm. that um, uh, I actually had to learn it briefly for a class, and it was a pain in my butt. But um, so basically, they just they licensed. It would be like it's basically the animation equivalent of a movie being made entirely in Adobe Premiere. Mm. The fact that they used this kind of just off-the-shelf software, especially back in 98, and they made something this gorgeous. I can show you my Toon Boom project. It's garbage. We so will the fact put that, that up in the podcast this, notes next to it so you can <laughs> compare. Yeah, just just post my, my Toon Boom. Just to show that, like, this is really impressive using the technology they used. It's like when you use MS Paint and make a Picasso. Like, it's... I, I'm very impressed they managed to pull this off of Toon Boom. Did you have something you wanted to throw in there, Beatrice? Oh, I mean, it was, it's less about kind of the techniques and more just it's really pretty. <laughs> it's just really pretty. And you don't see this type of style anymore, really. Um, so the fact that I think part of the reason why it survived so long as well is because of the animation, because it is so stunning and because it's something that we don't see enough of anymore. And it's, it's celebrated and it's a shame because it's truly from the facial expressions to, to the, the way that they use, they use the style to represent the the scenery like the setting and it's just all of it just works so well and um yeah it just it, it was uh, when i was watching i was just thinking often as it often happens whenever i watch 2d animation it's just this kind of constant reminder of oh what was the cost of pixar becoming as big as it did and mm-hmm. and disney and the pixar merger and stuff it just it, it's another kind of reminder of the impacts certain things in the industry the certain events in the industry, the impact they had on just the actual products of the yeah. animation. It's interesting you say facial expressions because that's one of my big like things that I always remember of this movie is the scene where um, Moses comes back and, and he and Ramesses go to talk after the bit with the snake or whatever um, in, yeah. the, in the throne room. 
and he's sitting there and you know Ramses thinks this is oh it's gonna be great we're gonna be back together and Moses is like no actually and he's got the ring in his hand and his eyes are closed and like the way his like eyebrows just move like always like it freaked me out but like it always is it's so expressive and I think about what um you bring up you know the Pixar Disney merger what um Christine Anderson Lopez said, um, who worked as one of the, is the lyricist on Frozen, she said that in animation, all of the, the emotion of the characters is in the eyebrows, um, which is true, I think, definitely for these Pixar films, but I feel like in um, something like The Prince of Egypt, like, you get so much more of a range there, which is interesting, because you're looking at it, you, you know, it's technically antiquated technology, it's an old form of animation that's pretty much not used anymore, but I feel like you get so much more expression and so much more reaction um, in a film like this than you do in something like, you know, Frozen or The Incredibles, and that, you know, also has a lot of other variables in it, in terms of how Disney wants to portray its characters and its attractive characters specifically, and that sort of thing. There was a whole kerfluffle about that. But that's it, right? Like this, like they don't make things in, like this anymore where you've just got such expressive animation on, on these 2D people, you know, if you want to get, you know, be a jerk about it, you know, they're technically drawings and, you know, you just get such emotion out of it. Um, and it is kind of sad that, you know, we're not going to probably for a long time have something, uh, this firing on all cylinders the way this did between animation and music and writing. Yeah. Um, but to the writing, so <laughs> this movie is like one of those things where I feel like we really need to have a rating between PG and PG-13. PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was gonna, yeah, that was, that was when they wanted to ask you, like, was it rated PG? I believe it was. I yes. can't, yeah, I can't find any, it definitely wasn't G. I mean, there's, I hope it wasn't. <laughs> it was probably PG. Well, um, it came out in 98, right? And yeah. I think, yeah. what was the first PG-13 movie? Wasn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't Temple of Doom, but it should have been Temple of Doom. It was right around then. Right. So like, PG-13 was pretty well established by 98. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. I, I think the issue is we're looking at it through modern PGIs, not 98 PGIs. Yeah. Goonies is PG. And this is in the same vein as that. Like, E.T. is PG, and that's, that slips in some stuff, too, where today, Frozen is PG, when it really Fro- should be G. PG? Frozen is PG, yes. Well, I thought that would have been And G. as G has basically become synonymous, not with all ages, but specifically for little kids, companies have been pushing for a PG rating as much as possible, and so PG has become more of the for the whole family as opposed to just for little kids. Hmm. And so a lot of the impact of PG movies, like you look at early 2000s, late 90s PG movies, they're all like this of how does that in here? Because today's PG is so, so different. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, because on the one hand, you're like, all right, so, you know, this is something that everyone can enjoy. Um, you know, it's got some scary bits and there is that one time when he turns an entire river into blood. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's like, okay, but how much of this goes over kids' heads? Like, that's my one thing too that I think about a lot. 
when it comes to ratings. It's not just like, oh, can they handle this? Is it too scary? Is it too graphic? It's like, how much of this are they, they going to digest? Like, there's so much in this story and the animation and the nuances of everything. It's like, it's made for, you know, somebody who has the mental capacity uh, to, you know, understand all that. But it's like, you know, a six-year-old isn't going to to you know, enjoy the dramatic um, weight of this film, you know what I mean? So, you know, it, it's one of those interesting things where it's like, we need, like, I, I just, I feel like we need something between PG and PG-13 um, that says, like, you know, maybe 10 to 12 or something like that. Um, but this movie, I feel like, is a great example of um, such a necessity. Well, do you think that this movie would have, had it come out, today it would have been rated pg-13 um no i don't yes. think so you think i so? think it would wow. yeah tell me why i mean i, mean, I don't know i just think because uh, nine is pg-13 is that really yeah wow and not just that but i mean it, this is dealing with a lot of like see like you know in the in the beginning i don't remember uh, moses's wife's name but you know, Zipporah. when they first meet, she's being sold as a as as a sex slave. Essentially, yeah. they were selling her to like they were giving her as a gift to him. Yeah. So, you know, there are certain things that are just I could easily see them as be. I think um, another one was uh, mo- that's more recent is the breadwinner, where it's not necessarily like showing you a lot of like gr- it's not graphically jarring or anything but because certain elements of like misogyny of like anger and 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 oppression they're so strong and those themes that they move it as into a PG-13 realm um granted that's like a war film so it's more easy to swallow why that's a PG-13 movie but um but yeah so i just think there's certain things in this film that perhaps you know, for instance, uh, another kind of real biblical film that's animated, The Star, that came out last year. I think that – I don't even know if that was G or PG. I, it, it felt more G than PG. It seemed to be about the animals more so than no, totally. from but what, what I, mean I got. Like, but, you know, what I mean is like here's like another PG. similar – like it, it, there's a different ways of treating different biblical stories and like a PG movie – I feel like nowadays would have been treat a biblical story, like an adaptation of that would have been more of a star kind of thing. Whereas a PG 13 one would have been more like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You bring that up too. Cause it's like, yes, like obviously to me, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like she's totally been being sold into, you know, sexual slavery to me that, you know, is just, Oh, I understand that immediately. And that sucks. Like it, it occurred, you know, it's, and it's like, they played it in such a way where there's really only one line that a kid might pick up on on it when, you know, Ramsey says, have it brought to my chamber. And it's like, oh, oh, no. Um, but, you know, as well, too, you know, you're dealing with a genocide as well. Like at the, the beginning of the entire film, the entire yeah. opening scene is slaves. Yeah, slaves being, um, sla- you know, these guys come into their house and just start killing babies you know that's and that happens again later in the movie um there's the continued theme of of slaughtered children so yeah thinking of it that way um it's interesting because it's like people think and people being me and other people i guess who who have this mentality it's you think pg-13 you think you know curse words people being you know violent on screen and that sort of thing but it is more these nuanced things like you know, what's weaved into the story and what sort of, you know, violent background and just, um, 
setting do you have for, for something like this that is a little bit much for a kid? Um, and I remember a while back, somebody had this blog post about the Prince of Egypt and about the rating, like specifically about, you know, like how uh, intense of a film it was, but how people were willing to, to overlook that or give it a PG rating because um, of the religious connotations of it. And um, certain mm-hmm. people who subscribe to certain religions will, you know, they will be very strict about certain things their kids can watch, but they are willing to um, let their censors sort of, you know, go for mm. a religious story. Um, cause there's an occasion for it and there's like a lesson in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think might've been Absolutely part of the mentality true. here too, just with the totally. rating system itself. Um, but it is a really intense movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the happier side of it. Um, so Steven Schwartz, did the music for this movie. It's a musical. That's the other thing, too, that I love about this. It's such an intense movie. It's basically, you know, the story of Exodus, and it's a musical. People sing. It's great. Um, But Stephen Schwartz did the music for this, who um, would become famous later for uh, Wicked. Um, But he did the music and the lyrics, so good for him. Um, The music, I think, is just really, like, Again, like, it's one of those, like, yes, like, I love Alan Menken, I love Howard Ashman, and I love everything that comes out of Disney, but this wasn't, like, a Broadway-ready show that I feel like you were getting out of Disney at that time, not that they were, like, you know, putting up musicals um, with the intent of making them into Broadway shows like they are now, Um, but, you know, you had, they very much used Broadway shows as a basis to create their musicals. This was something that was much more, like... I don't even want to, I don't know what the word is for unique or dark or what have you, but it's like, it was a musical, but it wasn't a fun musical. Like there was real occasion for, for using the music in this. Um, Alan Menken over at Disney used to say that basically you would, I think it was him that said this, basically um, you put a song in when um, the emotion or the plot becomes too much for the characters to verbalize. So they have to sing about it essentially. Um and I feel like here you kind of really get that. It's not like you don't have the I want song, the formulaic, you know, big ballad or whatever, but you've got these moments of like super intense um, drama that are underscored by music. I mean, that opening song, Deliver Us, is like, you know, and maybe that's what makes it easy to swallow, I, I guess, for kids is that, you know, you've got this entire opening scene where you see slaves and you see slaves being uh, killed, but it's set to music really dramatic music i mean i i agree with everything you said um it's it's i just it didn't work for me oh, i think me that's the that. one that's just the one aspect of the film that didn't work for me i just wish the film didn't have that type of me i mean i don't i don't even know how to properly verbalize this i think the best way to do it is by maybe it's because i'm just so conditioned to this kind i don't know i'm just conditioned to like a certain type of music that um you know i recently the most recent uh john mulaney comedy special on netflix came out and he had a little bit where he talked about psalms when he had whenever he went to uh 
church, there were these psalms that weren't, and the joke was that he was saying that they weren't songs, they were psalms. They (laughs) didn't quite sound like songs, but they were something else. And I think that's what these were. They weren't really songs because there wasn't this like beautiful, like graceful melody, but there was like a lot of like emotion and meaning in there and all this stuff. And, um, but I just, I don't know. I, there are certain like moments within a, a song, within, uh, within like a musical sequence that I'm like, oh, I like this. I like how this sounds. But then the rest happens and I'm like, I can't, I, my mind and my ears, they can't connect one thing to another. And it, I don't know. I just felt like the movie would have been stronger had it not had music and had just been a straight drama. And I just felt like it was just, I, I don't know, for me, when watching it, it came out as a, oh, they're putting music in this because every animation animated movie at the time had music in it. So they had to put music in it. And I just felt like you didn't, they didn't, they didn't have to. They could have just done like, done it straight. And it it would, in my opinion, would have worked better. But, um, but that's just me. And again, my I, my music tastes are odd, so I wouldn't be surprised if I'm like in the minority. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for that, because I do think, you know, with everything that goes on around this movie, it does seem like the one thing possibly out of place is the fact that it's a musical. Um, and I think they try to offset that with like the fact that they do do these sort of like darker, more less sing-songy um songs that you know do have you know like you know you've got that opening just very like rhythmic sounds and um the song uh that jethro sings is you know very much inspired by um jewish and other middle eastern music um but yeah like it does i do see what you're saying there where it's like okay the musical aspect of this feels like it's possibly a compromise to the trend of the time um, although it was on the back half of the trend in 1998, uh, Disney was starting to get away from musical animation, uh, slowly but surely. Um, but I, you know, and J- Stephen Schwartz, like looking at what he did in Wicked, it's like he is the perfect person to make music like this for a film like this that um, didn't want Disney sound and even traditional musical sound. Uh, cause if you listen to even the opening of Wicked, it's just like a mess of noise, but it's like such a tightly controlled mess of noise. Um, but you know, like technically this is then the first thing that he ever did that I, um, ingested. Um, obviously I didn't know about it until later until I went to go see Wicked and I was like, oh man, he did Prince of Egypt. That's so great. Um, but yeah, so something for the little, uh, the um musical fans out there steven schwartz of wicked and godsville did the music in this and and it's really funny how you say that disney was kind of they wanted him in particular because they wanted like a different sound than what disney was doing and yet you know several years later there's frozen and they essentially made defying gravity again yes they basically (laughs) reinvented the wheel with that one basically Um, which you know it's like it's like the the never ending circle of people of art imitating itself um is you know Stephen Schwartz Disney opposite it's a compliment. makes it's a wicked compliment. yeah makes wicked Disney then copies wicked makes frozen <laughs> um it's an interesting cycle uh Justin do you have any thoughts about the music are you ambivalent or uh, I, I like the music a lot, but interestingly enough, uh, Prince of Egypt is now a stage show. It is. We were we're gonna get into that in a bit. With also, of course, done by Stephen Schwartz. So, 
the one that we were talking about was not made to be a Broadway show is now a show. But um, I find it interesting that uh, he did work on a couple Disney movies, but not like the entire score, I think. I think he maybe did, which interestingly enough, actually, it looks like the only one he did the songs and lyrics for before Prince of Egypt was Hunchback of Notre Dame. He did Pocahontas as well. Yeah, that fits. He did the oh, lyrics for that fit. one, yeah. Now the ears yeah. are starting to connect the dots. Yeah, oh. he did Hunchback and he did some stuff in Pocahontas. But um, you, you compare songs like uh, Believe to, uh, what is it? Is it is it God Save the Outcast? God Bless the Outcast? God, God Help the, the Outcast? God Help the that Outcast. That one. That's the one. <laughs> Bells of Notre Dame to Deliver Us. Like, it's very, you can definitely tell it's the same person. Yeah. Yeah, and you can hear that even in Wicked when he's got those choral bits. Like, he just does sort of very heavy music, uh, heavy musical music. Like, if there was somebody who was kind of like the the gothic, you know, not necessarily metal person in um, in musicals, I feel like it would be Stephen Schwartz. Like, that's just like his style is just doing very heavy um, music. I think he did the lyrics in Pocahontas. I don't believe he did the music. Correct. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, he's great, uh, and I think it's just very impressive that he can do both music and lyrics, and it turns out, you know, the way it does. Um, I think that's using two parts of your brain that don't normally uh, coincide, so good for him. Um, so, something not so great about this film. Well, there's there's pros and cons, I guess, to, I don't know, the way that this film went about representing the cultures that it was representing. And this is something Beatrice specifically wanted to talk about. Um, so I will let you lead this basically on um, the casting representation and yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think we well first let's start with the positive. Let's start, let's start with like what they did do, right? Which mm-hmm. is that they decided to actually properly represent the skin tone of people from Egypt and people from that time period, at least of what we know of that time period, because even now that's uh, being uh, debated. But, um, you know, so they did do a a proper job in terms of drawing people like they're supposed to look like, you know, it wasn't... My issue is the whitewashing of the voice cast and people like often a lot of times people say, "Well, well, look, well, on screen it isn't white, so it should be okay, but... It's not. Um, And, you know, when I learned that this was essentially based on the Ten Commandments, I wasn't surprised by the voice cast because this is something that's always been the case. Whenever there's a big, epic, either historical or biblical film during that time period. So the Ten Commandments in 1956, right? Ben-Hur, 1959, Cleopatra, even most recently, Exodus, Gods and Kings, 2014. Oh my God, that was a bad one. Yeah, but it's like often the case where it's, you have this kind of very epic biblical story or historical story, whatever you, whatever it is. And they tend to put white actors as the stars. And the same thing happened here. Only instead of it being visual, it was just phonetic, like based on sound, the voice actors predominantly were white. And I thought that was ridiculous. Like it, nothing, nothing against the actual performances because the performances were great, but it's just kind of a testament that once again, like, you know, it's, I don't know if it was because, because I don't think we had reached that point where uh, animation studio, like animated movies wanted to cast big names in order to draw people into the movie. I don't think it was a marketing thing back then, 
but like or at least that trend of casting big stars was was such a thing or so present um i think that started really with shrek right that was the big one maybe yeah. possibly or yeah. no or maybe even toy story with tom hanks like what am i talking about um <laughs> but you know like i just I, I i don't know it's just really a shame because they do so well visually and they just couldn't follow through they and you know it is that question of like well you if you don't see them if it's just the voice is it considered whitewashing Mm -hmm. and i personally think it is um but that's up for debate like they did they did do good but at the same time it's like it's like five steps forward but then three steps back it's like we can't have we it can't be perfect is the question like the question of casting representation can never be too perfect i guess because that's too hard Mm -hmm. um and it was just it was just you know frustrating because you know you all you need to do is like there are people that exist that have great voices and they are from either middle eastern descent or jewish descent you know just give me a a jewish actors because this is a story that's from the old testament like give me that yeah um if you're having actual uh, uh, it's. I think at that point it was Israelites. So if you're having Israelites, like give me, give me the one, give me people who descended from that theology. Um, so it's it's not hard, and yet they couldn't go through with it. And I, I just, I just thought I couldn't talk about this film without mentioning that aspect. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, if you look at the, you know, you've got Val Kilmer as Moses. You've got Patrick and Stewart <laughs> and God. You've got Patrick Stewart playing. Um, a pharaoh. You've got Ray Fiennes playing another pharaoh. Um, you've got Helen Mirren playing um, the wife of of the the pharaoh. Um, you've got Michelle Pfeiffer playing Zipporah, who was even in you know following you know looking at the old story. Zipporah was actually um, she wasn't Hebrew. She she was um, I forget exactly where she was meant to be from, but it was somewhere uh, in the Middle East where essentially her skin was darker than that of um, the Israelites. So that actually comes up in the Bible that, um, Miriam's, I took a course, I had to read the Bible twice in school. So (laughs) this comes up a lot, but, um, Miriam, uh, Moses's brother actually didn't like her all that much because she had darker skin. Like it was literally a case of racism in the Bible. So you've got Zipporah, who's actually possibly, you know, she's a a, a woman of uh, color, possibly even like black identifying played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, come on. Um, you know, the only instances where we have really here of any sort of representation, like you said, um, you know, Jeff Goldblum voices Aaron. Um, and then you've got Afra Haza, who voices Yakeved, um, who was a very, she unfortunately passed away in 2000, but she was a very um, famous Israeli singer and actress uh, who was born in Tel Aviv. But she's like the only person uh, in the entire film, like the rest of it, it's Steve Martin and Martin Short play Hotep and Hoy, like. You know, it's yeah. it's a bunch of big white names. And then you've got maybe two or three people who have a cultural heritage connection um, to this story and to the location of where this story takes place. Um, so I agree. And I think that, you know, whitewashing a voice cast is something that should be discussed because, you know, it's like you said, like people say, oh, it's like, oh, it's their voices. It doesn't matter. But it's like, well, no, like you're writing, you're making a story about this culture um, why shouldn't it be told by people um, who have a hand in that? You know, I think Book of Life is a great example because with the exception of Channing Tatum, everyone who voiced a character in that film, well, Channing Tatum and I guess Ron Perlman, everyone who voiced a character in that film 
was of some Latino descent. Uh, and, you know, it was telling a story of Day of the Dead. Um, and I but think- not just that, I mean, and sorry to interrupt you, but not just that, but like even in, th- in those particular instances of casting, like that was like intentional from the director who was also mm-hmm. Latino. Like yeah. Channing Tatum said like, you know that I'm not Latino. Like I remember in an interview, he said how like he told uh, the director, he was like, you know, they're not Latino, right? Like I'm not th- like whatever. And he's like, no, 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 that's the point. Or no, like he was like, no, it's okay. I want that. That's specifically why I want it the way I want it. So it's like, it's also falls into like whole, like who's making this mo- these movies, mm-hmm. who's writing these movies. It's beyond just who's casting them. It's like, it's, it's a very systemic kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and that's the thing is like, obviously like, you know, I don't care that Channing Tatum's in there, but even if I did, it's not, you know, it's not my place to care. Cause it's like, you know, the director who is Mexican said, yeah, I want you in my movie. Like that's chill. That's fine. So it's like, okay, like, great, like, the people who are telling this story, who are telling this cultural story are making the decisions about how it's being told. Um, but I always just think that's a great example of why and how you can you can get, like, a really great voice cast with people, you know, like, it's like, yes, we've got, you know, a, a huge population of white actors out there because that's what we've been shown, right? Like, that's, that's the, the people who get cast. There are so many actors out there who aren't white, who identify as some form of ethnic minority, who you could cast in so many things and you can make such a great film. Um, but, you know, it doesn't happen. I mean, everyone in in The Prince of Egypt is like a huge name actor, like Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin. Like, you, you know, you purposely cast these huge, big name white actors instead of saying... You know, are there more actors like Ofrahaza? Like, why not get some Israeli voice actors, get more Jewish um, voice actors? But, you know, it is an unfortunate caveat to this because, like you said, like, they do such a great job of portraying ancient Egyptians, ancient Israelites um, in the way that they were, you know, as far as we can tell, they were supposed to look not, um, you know, um, Charlton Heston walking out there um, pretending to be, to be Moses. Um, so it's, you know, it's like we were almost there and then we weren't and that sucks. Um, unfortunately it continues to be the way it is until, um, I think we allow directors of various cultures to, you know, take the helm on these things and allow them to cast and allow them to do these things. But, you know, there's only so much I can complain about and, and, you know, add to it. I mean, I am white myself, so it's like, you know, I'm going to complain to the point where somebody tells me to get back in my lane, and then I will. But I want to see it as well. So this is me complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, any thoughts on that, uh, Justin? Uh, yes, to all of that. I definitely <laughs> agree that they did a great job with the uh, with the portrayal, but the, the voice cast, because um, I was rewatching with my girlfriend, and she grew up without a lot of media and so she was rewatching. she's like wait a minute that's sandra bullock wait that's jeff goldblum wait that's that's val kilmer like slowly realizing how this entire movie is cast of like big name people and looking back i was thinking you know like what big names from that time that were ethnic minorities could they have cast and realizing just like how much an issue it was like it's still there's still not as many well-known minority actors now simply because Hollywood's not casting them. 
And so, you know, like you said, that's a systemic issue. But looking back, especially in the late 90s, I'm like, I can't think of many that were real that had the same kind of name power as 90s Val Kilmer. Yeah. And I think that says a lot about kind of the system and how far we've come. But that's not an excuse because, like, you were willing to leave Disney to make this movie. Like, you've shown that you're willing to take risks. Like, you left a job at Disney. And. I just think that they definitely they could have done better. And I'd like to think if they remade this or not remade, but if they did a movie like this now, maybe Mm -hmm. we'd get better representation. But part of me doubts that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe we would, because while something like Exodus Gods and Kings still happens, um, recent thing that happened, but you know, Coco happened and that's from Disney. One of the very people who doesn't, who has track record, track record of not doing good by that. Um, so uh, I think, I think, especially nowadays, especially with the pressures of like from social media and people being a lot more vocal, I think had it been made today, we wouldn't have had the same cast or at least the same equivalent. So the Michelle Pfeiffer of today, the Val Kilmer of today. But um Christian Bale yeah. would have been voicing something. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I feel like, you know, I think now I think today they I don't know if they would have made the same casting decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's one of those things where it's like, yes, we are unfortunately like crawling towards a better place here. Um, but you know, and I think what makes this just so frustrating and kind of under a microscope for us is that it came so close because of such the the great way that they represented these people in animation that it's like, okay, if you pull back the curtain, it's like, oh, look at all these really famous white actors. That's that's great. Um, obviously, we can't change it. It happened. Um, but, you know, we can say, great, you know, you've got Jeff Goldblum as Aaron and you've got Ofer Haza, um, a really celebrated um, Israeli singer and actress who um, did a great job in, you know, the very small part that she had in the movie. Um, she actually passed away only two years after the movie came out. So um, at least we have that. I mean, it's not perfect, but um, we're getting there. Um, um, I have one question about yes. uh, voice acting because the, a lot of the characters had different, or if not all of them, they had different singers mm-hmm. versus the actual speaking roles. Did anyone like? Do you think that they did a good job finding people who matched? Did, it, did that throw anyone off? Or no, I think I was pretty good. Um, Brian Stokes Mitchell is like a really like he's got like for me at least just because like i'm super into musicals secretly um he's just a voice that i know so when i hear him like i was like oh yeah that's that's brian stokes mitchell like that's somebody i can pick up he was the singing voice of jethro um but i think they all did pretty good like i can't think of anyone um who uh you know, surprise me. It's like, obviously, I'm pretty sure Sandra Bullock wasn't doing that singing, but it's like, <laughs> oh, it sounds close enough that um, I can buy that. Yeah. Um, and Ray Fiennes did his own singing. Good for, good for him. <laughs> uh, doing his talk singing. And Steve Martin and Martin Short both did their own singing. Um, so good for them as well. Um, but yeah, that is like a thing, right? That I kind of have, sometimes have qualms about. Um like, I love Christopher Jackson, but I think it's so obvious how different his voice is from 
the actor who portrays the speaking voice of Moana's father in Moana. Like, I think it's just such a change <laughs> um, that it's a little bit obvious there. But um, no, I think they did good here. Awesome. I, uh, I was good with it, yeah. <clears throat> Great. So we mentioned this a little bit. Um, so the legacy of this is that they made what the, I don't. When, I feel like it when it came out, it wasn't a prequel, but it's referred to as a prequel now. It's like the story of Joseph. Um, it was a direct-to-video like prequel, basically telling the story of Joseph. And I will always want to say Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I know that's not what it's <laughs> called. It's just it's, it's there's that theater interest popping back. Yeah, up. Yeah, no, it's like my go-to. Like, it's just, it comes out so fast once it starts, I can't stop it. But Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors, um, which, you know, was good. It, it was what it was. Um, same animation style, um, what have you. But the, the the thing we mentioned earlier, or Justin brought up earlier, was there's a stage musical coming your way. Or I guess it just premiered, um, of Prince of Egypt. Um, it seems like what they're doing with this is kind of like what they did with... Um, they being Disney did with Hunchback of Notre Dame, where it's not on Broadway, it's playing internationally. Um, which, by the way, if you ever get a chance to like see or hear anything from that stage adaptation of Hunchback of Notre Dame, it's very good. You should take a listen. Um, it's kind of a big grievance in the the Disney side of Tumblr that it still has not been granted a a Broadway debut. Um, but yeah, this is a full a full musical. They've got twenty nine songs. Um, Darren Chris read for Moses, um, during, like, wow. <laughs> the, during the workshopping of this, so, you know, there's that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess, enough about it to, to really comment on it, just that it opened, it's been doing, uh, tryouts, um, it is currently, it, it wasn't, I think it's currently in California, or no, it's in Denmark. It was testing out in California. It is now in Denmark. Um, and I don't know if they have plans for it after that. I think they were just going to try and tour it to see what happened. But it is interesting, Justin, that you brought up that the, like this was kind of like the anti-Disney movie. Um, but it's been kind of making these concessions, we pointed out, you know, with becoming a musical and, and chasing Disney's kind of motif of making their films into musicals. And now it's becoming a stage show. <laughs> um I just wonder, it's like, okay, like, you look at the Hunchback of Notre Dame version of the stage show, it really pulls from the book and makes itself a lot more like the original story. Um, So I wonder here if they change bits around to make it, you know, I don't necessarily say more adult, just because, A, we've established that this is a pretty PG-13 film to begin with, and B, I, you know, don't subscribe to the mentality that animated films have to be for kids. Um... But it is interesting. It's like, okay, well, what's your occasion for bringing this to the stage? Like, what are you adding to the story, I guess? So, I don't know. It's something to check out. There's, like, zero information on it. But you should check it out. <laughs> um, and if you're in Denmark, you know, go to the the the, the Fredericia, Fredericia Theater um, and check it out. Uh, it includes all the songs from the original movie, and then it's got, like, 15 or 16 new ones, so... I don't know. Um, Apparently it's coming to Utah. It's going to be in Ivan's, Utah on July 13th. There you go. If you're in Ivan's, Utah, 
get on it and or if you <laughs> tell us how it is. Or if you saw it in California last October, let us know. Like, I want to know if this is good. Yeah. Yeah, I if you haven't to live in California, Utah, or Denmark. Hit us up. Yeah, I haven't been able to find too much information about this, so somebody tell me if this is worth hunting down or not. Um, I love, you know, you know, I I love Stephen Schwartz, so you know, I'm down for anything he makes. That's why I'm surprised it's an out of town. I feel like at this point, Stephen Schwartz could totally have the clout to say, "I want to put this on Broadway," but you know, whatever. I guess that works. Alright, so, does anyone have any lasting, impactful thoughts about this film? To share? I really like the uh, disclaimer they put at the very beginning of the film. I don't know if you guys oh, paid yes. any attention to that. Or, but I thought I thought that was really cool because we talk a lot about, it's been, this year especially, it's been a big discussion of, you know, how do we deal with material that may be controversial um simpsons just had this with up who you guys probably saw yeah and yeah. talking about you know how do we deal with things from the past and the way we view them now and i've seen this kind of disclaimer before in other places i know assassin's creed has a similar one uh whenever they show any of the forbidden looney tunes cartoons they always have something like this but just i like that they were like this is what it's from we changed it we believe we're staying true to what it is. And if you want to see the original, this is where to find it. This is something that used to happen a lot with uh, when film censorship was a lot higher in like the 40s and 50s. They would have these kinds of inner titles. And I just I thought they did a very good job with that. And I thought it showed a level of care that isn't really present in a lot of films that try to tackle religious content. Wait, but I don't think it was like censorship. I think it was just yeah, it was a disclaimer it, because it wasn't like, say, the forbidden like Looney Tune cartoons what? or even the Disney ones. It was just simply like, look, this is our interpretation of a biblical text. And, you know, sometimes interpretations are controversial, but we think it's a sen- like we got the essence of it. So I don't think it was exactly controversy in terms of like, oh, this is dated and we're still going to show it to you, but understand that it was from a different time. Yeah. Right. It's definitely different from that one, but I like I, it. It's the same kind of idea of, we want to say something to you before you watch this, even though it's a different, it's for a different reason, but I think that it's the same kind of essence of, we think that it's important. We tell you this before you watch the movie. And I think that they handled it very maturely. Yeah. 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 Uh, I agree. Um, and yeah, like we said that even went into the production of it where they brought in scholars from various schools of thought um, in uh, Western religions to basically talk about it. Um, I do know that the film still was censored in um, countries that had a high Muslim population um, because you're not allowed to um, portray a prophet. Um, or at least uh, somebody who is Islamic can't, um, as I understand it, um, see the image of a prophet, I guess, as rendered by um, in art. So in there it was censored, but it's like, you know, that wasn't censorship so much it was respecting um, religious and cultural laws. Um, but no, I agree. Like, there's that that, that opening text is um, very great. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, I just, there's so much about this movie that I like, so much that I think was, like, very brave with it, some of it that I wish had gone so much farther than it did. Um but I liked it. Uh, Beatrice, how did you feel about your first <laughs> your 2018 um, viewing of what you thought was going to be Sinbad? Um, I enjoyed it. It's a very ambitious film. 
I'm very ambitious. Um, so I had to make some concessions. Like there are certain things that they had to kind of skim past because of just the scope of the story they wanted to tell. And I understand that even though I wanted them to stay a little bit more, or expand a little bit more on certain things, I understand why they couldn't. Um, and I think that they were very graceful with the, with giving their rating and giving the heaviness of what, of the story, they were very graceful in doing that dance between the two of what they could show and what they didn't show. Um, so yeah, it's a very well-made movie. Still wish it didn't have the music and I still wish they had a better cast, but despite that, like it's, it's just, it's a great celebration of what animation used to be. And I love that it's on Netflix so that people can just like, see the magic of 2d and maybe hopefully in the future will be there'll be someone that will see it and be inspired and say hey i want to make a 2d movie not a 3d not a computer generated one so yeah yeah cool all right so find out all the info on this podcast at overlayanimated.com join us on the discord to text chat about animation at overlayanimated.com slash discord uh support us via patreon at patreon.com slash overly animated uh thanks to our current patrons especially our patron of the podcast sam aka yosemite sam uh and thanks as always to our patreon executive producers john ryan steve alex andy and hugh um anyone have anything they need to share uh for the good of their social media you can follow me on twitter at beatrice Murad. And I have a YouTube channel, which now that summer's starting up again, I'm going to start posting more on um, the Be Real Movie channel. Good. Justin, anything? I'm a hermit. Okay. I have a book out <laughs> if anyone's curious. Get her book! <laughs> you can buy book? my book. I do have a book. This is relevatory to everyone. Yes. Uh, the Rules of Me by Melanie Moyer. You can buy it literally anywhere. Yeah. You can buy it at Barnes Noble, your favorite indie anime. Indie animated indie bookstore, my mindset. Um, and you can buy it on Amazon if you want to do that. But you know, support support your local bookstore. Check it out; it's great. I like it. <laughs> I wrote it. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time. Au revoir. Bye. Right. Bye.